Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf with the Needless Venom edition. Today we're going to talk about marriage, ambition, family, and clones, and I'm sure much more. My guest is Sarah Gailey, whose debut novel, River of Teeth, was a 2018 Hugo and Nebula Award finalist. They've released seven books in their approximately five years as a published author, and today we're going to talk about their most recent novel, The Echo Wife about Evelyn, a famed genetic researcher, Martine, her just as smart but slightly nicer clone, and Nathan, the not-so-nice husband and or ex-husband who forces Evelyn and Martine into an uneasy collaboration. Sarah is on the line with me from their home in California. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I am delighted to have you on the show to talk about your fascinating book. And you're so prolific that I, I'm afraid that every minute I keep you here is a minute you're not producing another amazing novel. <laughs> I'm actually extre- I'm extremely excited to be here because it is giving me a chance to talk to you. But I'm also very relieved because it lets me not look at my deadlines. <laughs> Ah, okay, good. So this is a public service. I'm glad to do it. A a, a mental wellness exercise. So good. Absolutely. You're buying me another five minutes of life. (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. But denying your your fans five pages of amazing prose. It's okay. I think they've got enough to keep them busy for now. (laughs) Okay. All right. Your first person narrator, Evelyn Caldwell, she is the brilliant inventor of something called the Caldwell Method, which can turn a sample of DNA into a complete human going from, I love this phrase, sample to sentience in 100 days. I thought we could start with that, with you describing the method, what it's for, and give a sense of what the prevailing morality is around cloning in this world that you've created, which really sounds very much like our world, except for the human cloning part. I would, oh, I would love to talk about the Caldwell method. So this is, in many ways, the plot driver of the book. And it's this idea that you can sequence someone's DNA and then go boop and you've got a complete adult version of them in a big tube full of goo. This is my favorite cloning method in science fiction. You know, like I I like ray guns where you aim them at someone and then you've got more of them. And I like the thing where you've got like a magic broom or a magic bucket of water or whatever. But I really love the tube full of goo where you get the opportunity to have someone floating in there completely raw and new. I love the combination in that of adulthood and nascent infancy. There's a lot in this book about motherhood and about pregnancy. And for Evelyn, she's just completely externalized that entire process into the tube full of goo. She's developed a synthetic amniotic fluid, which does exist in the world that you and I inhabit, although it's pretty different from 
what's going on in this book because it's I, I think still in the research stages as we're recording this. Although I could be wrong, science moves so fast. I, a lot of scientists laugh at me when I say that, but from a publishing perspective, it moves so fast. Right, because publishing is so slow. Exactly. And she's also got a basically like flesh pulp that she uses to form the the body that eventually turns into the person. The way that I wrote this is intentionally very visceral. I love horror and I love writing horror. And I put that in this book as much as I thought my readers would be okay with. And then you asked about the, the morality in the world around cloning. It's extremely capitalist. Evelyn doesn't really have a personal economic philosophy. She doesn't necessarily think about the morals of the economy so much as she thinks about what the current system she's working in can get her if she knows how to work it the right way. She works for a private lab and there's some conversation in the book, not as much as I might have liked to put in there because it slowed down the narrative so much, about her struggle to get funding and maintain funding because she's privately funded and so she always has to be justifying her work. To her, the work is its own justification. She's like, I'm an amazing genius and I can do amazing scientific things. How is that not enough for you people? But in this world, the one that we live in and the world of the book, oftentimes, too often, you have to justify innovation by providing a way that it can profit someone, a way that it can move units. And so Evelyn develops clones to be used as tools. They're used for organ harvesting and transplant. They're used for body doubles for people like a, a politician who needs to go somewhere and have a body double available to draw fire from potential assassins. They're completely disposable. The concept of this story actually comes from a short story that I wrote and then I was like, well, this, this isn't anything. But it was a short story about a superhero who is a celebrity superhero and is constantly critiqued by the misogynist media and has a clone of herself developed so that she can study what she looks like in different situations and learn how to best model herself for all of the horrible, dangerous situations that she gets in for the eyes of the public. And that would absolutely be a use of clones in the world of the Echo Wife. Beyonce has cameras that follow her around all the time and she studies footage of herself constantly so that she can be performing the way she's expected to as a celebrity for magnitude. She's drawn some criticism for this, but I actually think it's just a sign of how incredibly dedicated she is to her work. And it would be a lot easier for her if she had a clone who she could film in all kinds of situations, study, and shift how she herself operates as a result of that. It would also be ethically a nightmare because to my mind at least a clone is kind of a person and creating a person for the sole function of studying how they look when subjected to discomfort is pretty bad but in Evelyn's eyes clones aren't people they're biological matter they're waste they're a tool and a technology and so what's the problem with them being used to the fullest ability it's really quite striking, actually. She has a very clear statement. She says, they're temporary, and when they stop being useful, they become biomedical waste. They are disposable. I mean, she just literally throws them in the garbage, and it's sort of like sight unseen, too. It sounds like no one really... I mean, she, she puts a curtain up when the investors come because they don't really want to see the details. I mean, that there's a person behind, you know, someone who looks like a person and has the DNA of a person, 
but for some reason in some legal way is not technically, legally a person, although it sounds like you and I both would have a hard time seeing the difference. Absolutely. It's very striking that Evelyn thinks that way and there's no question in her mind. So so that really sets up an important transition early in the story or a, an important conflict running through the story. And that's what her husband, uh, Nathan, does with the Caldwell method. And so we find this out pretty pretty early. I assume we can discuss that because it is kind of very much key to the story. (laughs) He uses it for a purpose that's definitely not something that Evelyn had intended. So I wondered if you could explain what Nathan, her at some point husband and later ex-husband, does with that method. Yes. I love talking about this book with people because nobody wants to give anything away. But also there comes a point at which we're like, well, the spoiler is the premise of the book. So how do we talk about it? I love it. And it it fills my heart up so much how careful people are to let other people experience the twists and turns of the book. So thank you for your care in that. So Nathan is, uh, oh, can I, can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, totally. Okay. Nathan is uh, Evelyn's just complete shitbird of an ex-husband. He's a real lousy guy. And they reach a point in their marriage where Nathan kind of realizes this isn't going to work out. And instead of voicing that, He lets Evelyn continue her work in developing the Caldwell method so that he can mine it and and learn about it from her first hand so that he can then attempt to duplicate it with his slightly less, shall we say, developed skill as a scientist and a researcher so that he can clone her to create a version of her that will be more docile and pliant and give him the wife that he wanted Evelyn to eventually become. Yeah, it's really a fascinating solution, I suppose, to marital conflict. I mean, it's really twisted, but it's certainly one way of resolving a conflict (laughs) is, I mean, I think it's something everyone hopefully learns earlier rather than later in life that we can't really change the people we love. I mean, maybe we can nudge them a little or maybe they can change themselves, but we can't really do it. But Nathan isn't happy with that idea. He's he's going ahead and he's going to make the wife of his twisted dreams. So that's Martine. And there's a very key thing that I'm going to try to very deliberately leave out. But this other part also seems important, which when Evelyn, again, relatively early in the book, is invited for coffee to meet Martine. Or she's met, I think, her before, but she, she wonders why the hell this clone is calling her and she's very dismissive I mean both because she's kind of the other woman but she's also someone who shouldn't exist because she's biomedical waste you know but here she is living with her ex-husband and so she shows up at the coffee shop and then she discovers something that surprises her even more and I thought maybe we could talk a little bit just about you know well what is that thing and what does it say about this world and about Nathan and that this is what he's using Martine for. Yeah, so Martine contacts Evelyn to get coffee because Martine is pregnant and wants to talk to Evelyn about all the things that you need to know about yourself when you're pregnant. She is a biological double of Evelyn. Nathan obviously doesn't know very much about either of their bodies. And Martine is starting to develop an awareness that there are things she needs to know. She doesn't really know what those things are, but she's like, this is a big project for me to take on with no information. And Evelyn is horrified for several reasons. I mean, first of all, because one of the driving factors of her and Nathan's divorce 
is her adamance that she does not want children. She went into the marriage not wanting children. And as happens so often, I've, I've seen this an alarming number of times, especially with heterosexual couples that I've known. The female partner says, I don't want children. And the male partner gets married to her just figuring she's going to change her mind eventually. And that's what Nathan does with Evelyn. He marries her. She's this brilliant scientist. She's very ambitious. She doesn't want children. And he figures she'll settle into being a completely different human being by dint of having a ring on her finger. So that's one reason why this is horrifying. The other reason is that clones are designed to be sterile. They are not supposed to be able to produce children. And it's a huge ethical kind of tentpole of the Caldwell method. Ethically, to justify this, clones can't be able to reproduce. They can't have families. They're not people. They can't do this. Um, and this isn't to say that not being able to have children makes someone inhuman, but to say that their inability to produce children is something that Evelyn uses to help maintain a sense of them being inhuman. You know, we were talking a couple of minutes ago about how difficult it would be for you and I to see a clone and not go, that's a person not least because humans will pack bond with anything. I mean, I see my Roomba and I go, that's a person. I'm like, he's a little man. We need to respect his boundaries <laughs> right. and space. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or a stuffed animal. Yeah. Absolutely. And seeing a thing that is person-shaped will make us go, oh, that's a person. And at the same time, seeing anything that seems to have a family tends to have a pretty big impact on humans and our relationship to the thing we're looking at. You know, if I see a deer, I'm like, well, that's a monster creature. I don't, I don't understand it. If I see a deer next to a smaller version of itself, I'm like, ah, a family. So this is like pretty fundamental to Evelyn's ability to justify clones being disposable is that they don't have relationships outside of the ones that you give to them. They don't have the ability to produce something that they will then have an intimate relationship with. And so Martine's pregnancy is impossible and poses a huge threat to all of Evelyn's work. If the word gets out that a clone got pregnant, all of her work would be in jeopardy. Her funding would be at risk. She would be completely fucked. One thing that struck me is that both Nathan and Evelyn, even though Martine is pregnant, well, I assume Nathan loves this woman because this is the perfect woman, right? But at some point we discover, without going into any deep details, that maybe he still sees her as a tool. That's kind of the, the sense one gets later. And Evelyn, too, is struggling with this. She keeps thinking of her as this object, even though she is identical to her. She She keeps being mystified when Martine picks up a book and shows she's super smart. And it's like, well, you're super smart. She has your <laughs> DNA. Surprise, surprise. But she keeps getting knocked in the head going, oh, she's actually adaptable. Oh, or she's tough. It's interesting because she starts showing traits that one thought Nathan had deliberately removed from her. And we start to learn a lot about how Evelyn was raised. And I started seeing the equivalency between how Evelyn was nurtured and how Martine was programmed. They're almost like the same thing, but a person who's 100 days old has to be programmed. A person who's 30 years old gets to be nurtured and it, you get to have time. But in the end, there seems to be a sense that nurturing is, in fact, a kind of programming. 
And I wondered if that's what you were thinking. Where is the equivalence? Maybe where isn't the equivalence? Yeah, that was that you just hit the nail right on the head. I mean, that was exactly the kind of thing that I want to have unfold for the reader as they're experiencing this book. Evelyn has this idea that so many of us have. The idea is I have decided who I am. I have chosen the person who I am today. I have made the decision to be like this. And in some cases, that's true, right? I, I try to apply a queer praxis to every aspect of my life, which means that I do not assume that anything is a given. And I look at everything I do, every every aspect of my identity that I claim, and I say, am I doing this because it's assumed or am I doing it because it's true of me? So is, there are people for whom the way they live their life and the person there is a choice. Evelyn has never been like, am I doing this because it's what I want or because it's what's assumed? Evelyn thinks, well, I'm doing this because I want it. And if I want it, I'm right to want it. And therefore, it's the right thing to do. But she still has this fiction about herself that she has chosen all of this, that all, all of her life and personality is her choice. She also, part of the Caldwell Method involves programming, which is the process of using hormonal conditioning to shape the behavior of the clone that you're gonna be pulling out of the tube full of goop. This is not a real thing. This does not really exist. I made this completely up. Most of the research I did for it was to make sure it wasn't coming too close to any actual science because I didn't want scientists getting mad at me. So please do not think that this is a real thing that people can do, hopefully. That's a relief. <laughs> Don't try this at home. She has this belief that she's molding the mind and behavior and emotions of a clone. And then the clone comes out of the tube and that's the end of it. That's the end of the story. In much the same way that a lot of parents struggle to connect the adult person who they're speaking with, with the child they raised. They have this memory of their child as having one personality. And then that personality changes over time, but the child comes home as an adult and the parents are like, well, don't you still have that personality you had before? This is how Evelyn feels. But there's the added aspect of she thinks she's in control of it. And she's extremely confident. So when Martine starts showing signs of change, starts doing things that go outside of the programming Nathan did to make her docile and pliant and maybe a little thoughtless, it destroys Evelyn's concept of what her work is the same way that Martine being pregnant does. This shouldn't, to her mind, be possible because there's never been a clone who has lived long enough or been intimate enough with her in her life for her to see these changes. So she's like that parent going, oh my God, you're different now. And what does that mean? If you can change and start to want things and explore the world and have curiosity outside of the curiosity I've given you, if you can begin to develop a personality outside of the one I've given you, you know, this isn't in the text because Evelyn isn't religious, but fundamentally the question is, do you have a soul? Does this make you a person? What, what makes a person, a person, as opposed to a column of meat with electricity running through it. And that's the question Evelyn has to face when Martine starts showing curiosity about her body and her life and the world and getting angry and doing things that fight her conditioning. It's interesting. I think Evelyn at one point feels a little bit vindicated because even though Nathan created Martine to be the non-venomous 
version. I mean, that's what I call this episode, the needless venom edition, that Evelyn showed needless venom. So he wanted Martine to not have any venom. And then she starts to get a little, I mean, she certainly shows that she has a temper. And I think Evelyn feels a little vindicated somehow that there's something right about it, or it is kind of who she is somehow in some way. It's interesting. So Evelyn's attitudes do start to change. It's never quite clear to me how much that is because she starts to see Martine as a person or because Martine is a reflection of herself. She starts to see herself differently in some ways through the, her reflection in Martine. I mean, maybe it's not a fine distinction. Maybe it's a little bit of both. She is enduring the absolute horror and wonder of constant self-reflection. She is forced into a position that I think any of us would be in when faced with a clone of ourselves that's designed to have an opposite personality to us. Martine's personality is designed in every way to be an answer to the flaws Nathan sees in Evelyn. Every place where he thinks she has a shortcoming, it's fixed in Martine. And so when Evelyn looks at Martine, she's seeing a fixed version of herself. And she has to ask herself the question, if I like something about Martine, does that mean I hate it in myself? If I hate something in Martine, does that mean I love it in myself? What aspects of my personality do I actually value and want to keep? And which ones do I despise? Evelyn's sense of self is very confident, but also very honest. She knows that she has flaws and shortcomings. She just thinks that they are a perfect part of the constellation that makes her up and sees no need to change because her personality has gotten her where she is. And that's what matters most to her. But when she sees Martine, she sees this whole other way that she could be. And there are some things about Martine that she really likes. But of course, if you really like something in someone who's designed to be the opposite of you, you're forced to look back at yourself in dismay. And that's not something Evelyn really knows how to do. To be fair to Evelyn, maybe we could talk a little bit about her upbringing, because I want to ask you about also a profile of you in Publishers Weekly. In it, you said you were diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder after an abusive relationship. And so I imagine Evelyn also suffers from some form of complex PTSD, having been raised in a home that was very abusive. I mean, the father was abusive. And one thing we haven't discussed about cloning is that in order to replicate as closely as possible the duplicate with the original, sometimes she has to break a bone or do a few things which seem really kind of sadistic, but, you know, all in the name of scientific accuracy, you know, oh, oh, this person had a broken whatever when they were seven, so I have to snap their leg here in the lab and have it heal. And and she does it with a kind of ease that I think might be explained by the fact that she herself had at least one broken bone as a result of child abuse. So long way of asking that I imagine Evelyn has something like PTSD, but not being particularly self-reflective. I don't imagine she went and got a diagnosis ever and would be the kind of person who would even ask for help. So even though I noticed a strain of something maybe personal from your life reflected in Evelyn, there's clearly a big difference. So I thought we could talk a little bit about that, about how you drew from your own personal experience. Yeah, I would love that. So my my post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis 
was only possible when I got to a place in my life where I was fairly safe and stable. Part of, I don't want to be too general here, so I'm just going to speak in terms of my own experience. I don't, I'm not trying to speak for anyone else or for the mental health community in general. So all of this that I'm saying, this is just a big caveat. All of this is just my own experience, but I'm not going to keep on saying that over and over again because it will be insufferable. So when, when trauma occurs, there's a trauma response that is designed to help you survive a situation that you wouldn't survive without that trauma response. Your, your kind of frontal cortex powers down, your brainstem takes over, you know, you get adrenaline, you can go fast, you can lift up heavy objects, whatever. When the survival situation is over, if there's not the right kind of care in the wake of trauma, or if that trauma just continues happening over and over again on an everyday level, that's how we develop post-traumatic stress disorder, because this is a huge oversimplification. Basically, the brain gets a little confused about when to deploy that trauma response. And so says there's a stimulus happening right now that reminds me of the situation where I was in danger. So I need that trauma response to help keep me alive, even though the thing that's reminding the brain of that traumatic situation isn't actually the traumatic situation. So like, again, vast oversimplification is if you get burned in a fire, maybe you have a trauma response that pulls you away from the fire to try and keep you safe, but you still get hurt. So the next time you hear noise of like fire in a fireplace, your heart starts beating really hard and you get really hypervigilant and aware of your surroundings, right? So all of that is just really brief explanation of post-traumatic stress. Evelyn, I think, could be described as having PTSD, but at the same time, she's never been in a safe and stable situation where that trauma response wasn't in some way useful to her. We, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder with the word post at the front of it. So if you're in a traumatic situation, you can't really have post-traumatic stress disorder because you're just having stress, right? This, this only becomes something that we're aware of when it doesn't suit the needs of the environment anymore. Evelyn's coped with the trauma of her abusive childhood in a way that lots of people do. The original title of the working title of this book was We Will Be Monsters because it was an exploration of how a person might become monstrous. And Evelyn becomes, and I, I don't think she would mind me using this word to describe her, monstrous as an adult, very much as a result of her abusive childhood. She has an abusive controlling father who's very smart and who is mentoring her to become the kind of person who can be a brilliant scientist. The way he sees the world, the way to do that is to be ambitious, cruel, unapologetic, unyielding. And then she has a mother who's a lot like Martine, very docile, very polished, kind of the perfect housewife, the perfect doctor's wife, presenting a very perfect face. But also she's the wife of an abusive husband. And so she knows how to try to step around the landmines in their relationship. Evelyn's father has an immense amount of disdain for Evelyn's mother and communicates to Evelyn as he's, as he's raising her as a child that everything she does that emulates her mother is weakness. It's bad. It is to be disdained. And Evelyn as a child sees the dynamic between her mother and father and says, well, one of you is vulnerable and gets hurt a lot. One of you is powerful and does the hurting. 
I know which one of those I should emulate to be safe and to feel like I have power in my relationships. And so she models herself in every way after her father. It's only a natural extension of that then that as an adult, she would dehumanize certain people and see no reason not to harm them if it seems necessary to her to get her where she wants to go. I think that if Evelyn had cause to self-reflect in a way that would make her go, oh, I don't want to be hurting people, she would then be on the path toward trauma recovery and a post-traumatic stress diagnosis. But you have to get there first. I feel completely comfortable saying I've drawn a lot on my own experiences in Evelyn in my recovery from immense trauma. There was a period in my life where I was getting into fist fights a lot. I was like going out and there would be someone who was getting in my space or touching me in a way that I didn't like and didn't care for and wasn't appropriate to me. And I would put them down. And it was only after some stability and some reflection that I was able to go into a therapist's office and say, I don't understand why this keeps happening. And that therapist was able to help me see the ways in which I was seeking out situations that would let me find control over my environment and reassure my poor scarred up brain that I could keep myself safe by putting myself in danger. This is a very classic trauma response. It's pretty well known. It's pretty common. The therapist who I was working with called it lion's den syndrome, where you need to reassure yourself that you're capable of fighting a lion. So you keep going and finding lion's dens and marching into them and jabbing the lion with a, st with a stick until it roars at you. Which isn't to say that I was bringing on myself inappropriate behavior from other people, but that I was going and looking for ways to prove that I could take care of myself. Every time Evelyn asserts control and dominance over someone she's dehumanized, she's reassuring herself that she has that control, that no one can do this to her because she does it to other people. And I think that it would take a lot of work and intervention for Evelyn to get to a place where she's able to say, oh, this is this is maladaptive. This isn't actually the person who I want to be. I need to unpack all the things that got me here. That was so well said and well explained and really illuminates the perpetuation, I think, of trauma in generations. A logical response, but there's no logic in this, of course as you've clearly explained, would be, oh, I've suffered in some ways by this treatment. I will do my darndest not to repeat it, rather than repeating it ad nauseum or finding a way to repeat it to reassure oneself in the many ways that you, you have described. I will say Evelyn, by the end of the book, seems to have, I mean, there are certain decisions she could have made that would have resulted in more harmful outcomes and she pulls back. So, so maybe there's some hope for her of growth. <laughs> I, I am always really fascinated by the way that cycles of abuse kind of shift. It's like spirography, that, that thing where you use spirals to describe a really intricate pattern. And in the end, it always loops back on itself. I think so often, especially of intergenerational trauma, the thing, and I, I apologize if this might be triggering for your listeners, I'm about to mention the way that some parents use, oh my God, I was just about to say capital punishment, that's not right. 
the way that some parents use corporal punishment to try to discipline their children. I always think of the difference in generations between you shouldn't strike your children ever, which is kind of where a lot of my peers are. Spanking children is okay, as long as you're only using your hand, which is where a lot of my peers' parents are. And go cut a switch, which is where a lot of my parents' parents were. And I'm just going to punch you, which is where a lot of their parents were. And each of these generations thinks, I'm being so gentle with my children. I'm being so kind to them. I'm real, I cannot wait to find out what in 20 years from now the, the wisdom will be about what the correct way is to try to correct poor behavior in a child. I've spoken to some colleagues of mine who practice anarchist parenting, which has like yet another different layer of respecting the autonomy and selfhood of children. But ultimately, we're all, even when we're trying to stop hurting other people, I think it's pretty impossible not to hurt other people, especially when we ourselves are coming from a place of hurt. Uh, we can do our best not to recreate harm, and we can, we often try to accomplish that by not duplicating harm. But of course, we're going to hurt each other, and all we can do is keep on trying to hurt each other less and less, unless we're not interested in that. And there are some people who are like, I'm not interested in not hurting other people, because hurting other people is the way that I know to keep myself in a position of safety and power. You know, I can only stay at the top of the hill if I kick other people who are trying to climb up to the top of the hill. I'm absolutely fascinated by it, and it definitely plays kind of a central role in how I wrote this book and how I wanted to depict people trying or not trying to grow out of the situations that they've come to expect. It is fascinating how each generation tries to improve on the parenting that they received because they can see clearly what was wrong with what was done to them. And they think they've made such a huge improvement, but then their kids see clearly what was wrong with, with what they did. It's always clear looking back. It's, it's less clear looking forward. It's very interesting. So this will probably be kind of a wrap-up question. Moving away from PTSD, abuse, clones, the Publishers Weekly article also said you didn't plan on becoming a writer, and yet in really five years, you've published a lot of short stories and a lot of novels and novellas. So what flipped the switch for you? You know, I think it was really just finding something that cannot possibly bore me. When I started writing, I was working front desk administrative office management positions, uh, office jobs. And the way that I viewed my work at that time was, I'm very happy that I'm not incredibly passionate about my work. And I want to apologize to everyone who ever interviewed me for a job at the time, because while I was doing those jobs, every job interview I had, I was like, no, administration is my number one passion, because that's what you have to do in job interviews. But like, of course it's not. I love organization. I love spreadsheets. But like stocking someone else's kitchen at a tech company is not the thing that I dream about and that makes me leap out of bed in the morning, no matter how much I may have lied about it in past interviews and hopefully won't ever have to lie about it in an interview in the future if this publishing thing works out. I started writing and I was like, well, this is fun. It's a fun hobby. And at the time, my thinking was really, I like having a job I'm not terribly passionate about because I can pursue things I'm passionate about outside of work, which I think is a really great way to live and work. I think it's a, a really great way to be, is to have a job that pays your bills and that you can draw boundaries around really easily. And then you have the things that you love and they just don't 
they don't have to be the same. It's okay. It's all right. As long as you're doing work, oh, I read this recently, as long as you're doing work that you're okay with that helps other people somehow, that's a good job. I mean, as long as you're not cloning people and then disposing of them <laughs> as medical waste after you've done breaking their legs. <laughs> Listen, you know, whatever pays the bills. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> then I started writing and you know, I've always been someone who will pick something up, learn the things about it that I want to learn. And then I'm like, okay, my interest in this has waned. I will put it down and move on. And I think that's a fine way to be. Some people think it's not, I don't know. Their opinions are my business. But with writing, I picked it up and I just fell into this Mariana's trench of things you can learn. Writing never gets uninteresting. You're never retreading the same information over and over again because it combines learning about the world and learning about yourself and learning about expression, all three of which are like infinitely interesting. There's infinite ways to communicate an idea. There's infinite things in the world, which is always changing. And then the self, I mean, is part of my ongoing project of like trying to take the things out of my brain that were put there to make me a worse person. I've found that the self is unplumbable depth. There's always more in there. And when you braid those three things together, you end up with infinite diversity of ideas and infinite combination. And so I can't get bored with it. I can't. It's always interesting and exciting. There's always new things. This is part of why I write way too much is because I will find something interesting and I'm like, oh, this is an interesting thing. I can learn about it. I can find ways to communicate it to other people. And then there's the like, the like last thing, the kind of shell on top of it all that turns it from walls into a house. You connect with people through writing. Whenever I write something and publish it, I'll end up hearing from someone, oh, this spoke to me. And that means that that gave them a connection to this incredible, endless interest that they got to feel something that I felt uh, in a way that I couldn't have felt it, that they got to tie a narrative into the narrative of their life. And that's thrilling every single time. Thank you so, so much for sharing your thoughts and sharing your writing and sharing your time with me and our listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. This was such a pleasure. I've been talking to Sarah Gailey, author of The Echo Wife, which came out from Tor in February. Thanks for listening. Consider subscribing and leaving a review or liking the show on your favorite podcasting app. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf. I edit the show, which is part of the New Books Network. Marshall Poe is the network's founder and editor-in-chief. And Leanne Wilson is co-editor Take care of people, books, and the world around you as best you can. Until next time.